Now, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to take them out with me and look at our scripture text together. We're going to be in the book of Titus once again this morning. This is week two in our, week, our seven-week series of the book of Titus. Titus is almost at the very end of your Bibles, so you should be able to find it if you go almost to the very end. After First and Second Timothy, before Revelation, somewhere in that general vicinity. Now, last week's sermon, if you were listening or if you were here, uh, last week's sermon is what I would like to call more of a, a, an inspirational sermon, so to speak, right? But this week, due to the nature of the text, this is going to be a little bit more of a teaching type of sermon, okay? A little bit more of a teaching type of sermon as we look at the qualifications for elders in the church. Qualifications for elders in the church. That's where we're coming to in our verse-by-verse trek through the book of Titus. Now, I want you to know, I'm coming up on about a year, almost exactly a year now, here at the Columbia Christian Church as the minister, and one of the most crucial things in any church is the relationship between the elders and the ministerial staff. It's one of the most crucial things in any church. And you are very blessed here to have a group of elders that are, number one, biblically qualified men. They're qualified, as you're going to see here in what we study. Before I ever came here, you chose men to be elders. As a congregation, you chose men to be elders who are biblically qualified. You have men in this position who are shepherds, and not just, uh, for instance, managers or board members, but they're spiritual shepherds, shepherds of souls. And you have a church right now that we're blessed with a great atmosphere and relationship between the elders and the ministerial staff, the elders and the deacons, and I believe the elders and the members. And so we're extremely blessed as a church to have eight godly men who serve as elders. And I believe we should follow what Paul says in 1 Timothy, that the elders who rule well should be worthy of double honor. And so in whatever ways you can, I would encourage you to honor and encourage those men who serve as elders here of Columbia Christian Church. But why a section on the qualifications of elders in a book, for, in a book, Titus, that's all about good works? Last week we talked about the theme of this book, and it's good works. That's the theme of the entire book of Titus. But why a section on the qualification of elders in a book like that? Now, here's my stab at answering that question. As a church, our good works in this community and in the world will be ruined if we have unbiblical leaders. Our good works in this community and in the world will be ruined if we have unbiblical leaders. Think about this. From the outside looking in, from outsiders, they might look in at a church that has unbiblical leaders and say, that church's leaders are full of hypocrisy and sin. Why should I trust anything they do as a church? But from the inside, think about the inside of a church that has unbiblical leaders. There are people in churches all over the place today who are saying, we're so distracted by the problems on the inside, we can't turn our eyes to the good works that we're supposed to be doing on the outside. It's absolutely crucial to have men who are biblically qualified in this position of an elder. The elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. The elders are the shepherds of souls here. The elders are the guardians of the doctrine of the church. And while we have eight biblically qualified men who are serving faithfully in that role now, we not only need to think about how blessed we are at this point, we need to think about the future of our church. 
What happens the next time it's, it's time for us to nominate a man to be an elder who has not been one before? When we have a new crop of elders coming in over the course of the next years, decades, whatever, it's crucial, absolutely essential, that we only put men up for that who are biblically qualified. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I ask you to read along with me as I read our text. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. I'm going to read down to verse 9. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Starting in verse 5, it says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now remember Paul's relationship with Titus. Paul and Titus planted a bunch of churches in Crete. Paul has now left to do gospel work elsewhere, but he's left Titus there as an extension of himself, and Titus is there essentially going around making sure the churches are put in order. So look at verse 6. It starts with the qualifications here. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, that's another word for elder, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, as you see there, we don't have time to analyze every attribute that's listed there. We just don't have time this morning. Probably take a few weeks to do that. But we can run over a few general themes that are crucial for our understanding of what it takes for a man to be considered as an elder in a church. And so let's look at these qualifications. And we'll start out with an overarching theme that I think is probably the most important aspect of all of this. And it's godly character. For a man to be even considered as an elder, he must have godly character. Look there at the beginning of verse 6 where Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, he must have godly character. Those attributes in verse 7 and in verse 8 all point to this one theme, godly character. Now, you need to note this as we go through these qualifications. When it comes to potential elders, God is not primarily concerned with a man's business management skills. God is not primarily concerned with a man's ability to get things done. Right? These are things that some people really value in a church as a potential elder. No, God is primarily concerned with a man's character. His character. You see, leadership in the church is much different than leadership in the world. Leadership in the church is much different. Now, it's important to understand character matters in every leadership position there is. Whether it's politics, whether it's business, doesn't matter what it is, character matters. Okay? And a leader's character is going to come through in the course of him leading in whatever position of authority he's been given. But secular leaders can be somewhat successful even if they lack character, right? Secular leaders can be somewhat successful even if they lack character because the metrics on which secular leaders are judged often have nothing to do with character. But not so in God's church. It is impossible for a man to lack godly character 
and be a successful elder. Notice in our text how twice, twice Paul said, above reproach. In verse 6, right at the beginning, he must be above reproach. Verse 7, right at the beginning, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. What does that mean, above reproach? Well, one of the helpful things about your New Testament is you actually have two places where it goes over the qualifications for elders. Okay? It's, it's important as you study your Bibles, as your Bible students, just, just remember this. Have this in your heads. The two places in your Bibles that it talks about the qualifications for elders are Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Okay? Both of those are lists of the qualifications for elders, and both of those lists help us to understand the other. Right? So, for example, when it says above reproach here, one thing that helps us is that in, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says he must be well thought of by outsiders. Okay? That gets at what we're trying to, to say here. Above reproach, he must be well thought of by outsiders. That's part of it. In one of the best books I've read on the subject, uh, the author, Thabiti Anyabwile, says, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. Above reproach, godly character. And so when a man who is above reproach is nominated to be an elder, everyone should think, that's exactly the kind of man I want spiritually leading our church. And so I'd encourage you to go through this list, especially those attributes in verse 7 and verse 8. There's certain things which he's not supposed to be. There's certain things that he is supposed to be. And all of this points to godly character in a man. A man should have a reputation of godly character. And if there is a question about a man's character, he should not be put forward as a potential elder. But notice there in verse 6, after it says, if anyone is above reproach, it says, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, your Bible might actually have a note on this, but literally in the Greek, that phrase says, one woman man. An elder must be a one woman man. And so this does not mean that marriage is a requirement for a man to be considered as an elder. Marriage is not the requirement. The requirement is that he be a one-woman man. If he is married, he must be faithful to one wife. Paul is essentially saying here that he must not be a multiple-woman man. Okay, that's what Paul is saying here. He must not be a multiple-woman man. It's essentially the same thing as the seventh of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Now think about this. Can a single, unmarried man follow the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery? Can he obey that commandment? Yeah, he can. Absolutely he can. Right? And the same idea is consistent here. Paul is not saying a man must be married to be an elder. No, he's saying that if a man is married, he must be faithful to one woman. If a man is unmarried, he must be committed to God's design for sexuality and marriage, even if he is single. He must be committed to God's word and God's will on those things. And in fact, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, teaches about the advantages in ministry of being single. Do you know that? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the advantages to being single in ministry. Refraining from marriage. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, was single. Now, if we require marriage for a man to be considered as an elder, would you feel comfortable telling the Apostle Paul himself that he was unfit to be an elder in your church? 
Do you feel comfortable telling the Lord Jesus himself, who was single and unmarried, that he was unfit to be an elder in your church? Of course not. Because Paul is not saying here that a man must be married. No, what he's saying is that a man must be completely committed to God's pattern for sexuality and marriage, whether he be single or married. He must be faithful to the Lord in his sexuality. He must not be prone to sexual immorality. He must lead a godly life in those areas. And just in case you think this is you know, John Davis's opinion out of nowhere, when I was studying up on this one, I checked 13 sources from scholars and commentators that I trust. 13. Books, commentaries, etc. Of those 13, 12 all said that marriage is not a requirement for a man to be an elder. A single man can be an elder. 12 of the 13. The other one simply didn't take a stance. It, it presented multiple viewpoints and said, you as the reader need to decide for yourself. None of them decidedly said, a man must be married to be an elder. And so I do not believe at all that being single disqualifies a man from becoming an elder. Now, if a man lives his entire life faithfully single, chaste, not committing any kind of sexual immorality, not having a reputation for that, that man can be an elder if he is qualified in these other ways. This is not the only qualification here. So he must be a one-woman man. But from that, we can also deduce that elders must be men. Elders must be men. The office of elder in the church has been reserved by God for men only. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, right before Paul goes into that other list of qualifications for elders, Paul says this, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, at the very least, this passage means women cannot hold the office of elder in a church. Because elders are the ones responsible for a church's doctrine. Elders are the ones in the authoritative position of defining what we believe and what we don't believe as a church. And in 1 Timothy, like I said, that passage comes right before the qualifications for elders. And if you noticed in that section, Paul goes all the way back to creation itself for the grounding of his reasoning there. Why does Paul teach on these gender roles like this? Why does Paul say that a woman cannot be in an authoritative teaching position in the church? He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. So lest we think this is just one thing that, that's different now than it was back then. It, it's, it's true for Paul's day, but it's not true for our day. No, Paul goes all the way back to Adam and Eve for his reasoning here. He goes all the way back to creation itself to ground this. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve, and then their deception to Satan. So this does not mean that women are less important or less valuable than men, or that they were not created in God's image as much as men were. Now, God has created men and women equal in dignity, equal in value, and yet distinct in their roles. Men and women are created equal in dignity, equal in value, and distinct in our roles. Case in point, men cannot have babies. I don't care what the culture says. Men cannot have babies. Okay? 
God created us like that. Now, does that mean that men are any less important or less valuable in the process of raising a child? No, it doesn't. It just means, guys, you can't carry a baby to term. It's not going to happen. God didn't create you like that. We have distinct roles. God's created men and women beautifully distinct, beautifully different, beautifully complementary to one another, right? And yet that has no bearing on who is more or less valuable. And so this is not a power grab by men to keep women down. It's not what's going on here. But it is the will of God himself. And as 21st century Americans, modern people, we need to ask ourselves, what do we do when God's will rubs us the wrong way? What do we do when God's word calls us to something that the rest of the world is going to scoff at and consider ridiculous? What do we do when God's word prescribes something that's not exactly the way we feel like it should be? You're going to go with yourself? You're going to go with culture? You're going to go with God? We've got a choice to make there. Now, right after it says, husband of one wife in verse 6, one woman, man, it says, and his children are believers. His children are believers. Now, it's important to note here, this could also be translated, his children are faithful. And so we're not completely sure that this definitely means his children must have committed their lives to Jesus and been baptized and been saved. Right? This could actually mean his children are faithful. His children are obedient and submissive to their parents. Could mean that. The list in 1 Timothy is actually helpful again here because in 1 Timothy what it says is that a man must manage his household well. For if he cannot manage his own household, how can he manage the household of God? And so, when you look at the children of a man that you are considering possibly as an elder, the idea is this. Do his children give you the impression that he is a godly man in his family life? That he is a godly leader at home? Because he's supposed to be a godly leader at home first before he can be a godly leader in the church. Men, we are called by God to be the spiritual leaders of our home. And God says in his word, people can look at our family, and it's a reflection of us. It's a reflection of our love for the Lord, and our devotion, and our discipline, and our self-control. Do we keep our family in the Lord? Or does our family show the rest of the world that we are not spiritual leaders at home ourselves? That's the idea here, okay? Does his children give the impression that he can manage his household well? You look at his wife, look at his kids, if he has those, if he has them. And that can tell you if this man is, is somebody you want leading the church. Now, questions here. Does this mean a man with no children can be an elder? Yes. It can, a man with no children can be an elder. This is the same kind of idea as the one-woman man statement. Children are not the requirement. The requirement is he has to be a spiritual leader at home. If he has children, are they giving you the impression that this man is a spiritual leader? If he has children. But a man without children, I'm firmly convinced, can be a biblically qualified elder. Notice how it says children. Does that mean a man with one child would be disqualified for being an elder? I mean, it says children. Children. Does that mean a man with only one child would be disqualified? No, absolutely not. The idea is, if he has children, you can look at that and get a sense of how much of a leader spiritually he is at home. Now, we do have to say this, though. What about adult children who do not walk with the Lord? 
What if a man has adult children and they don't walk with the Lord? Right? Now this is John Davis here. This is from my hopefully theologically informed and trained and sanctified mind. This is not straight from Scripture. But I believe personally, judging from what we're studying today in 1 Timothy, that if a man had grown children who were not walking with the Lord, that would not disqualify him. Grown children. Because, parents, as you know, there comes a time when we are not as responsible for our kids as we were. Because they're adults. Because they're responsible for themselves. Not only to society, but to the Lord. There comes a time where we are not responsible for our children's walk in Christ like we once were. Right? My kids are seven and nine. I'm not there yet. Right? God's going to hold me accountable if the Lord returns tomorrow for, for my family and my kids. But there's also a sense in which there's many devoted believers out there who did everything they could growing up. And now their children are adults and have walked away from the Lord. And, and my, my friends, I, I do not pretend to know how hard that must be and what a huge burden that must be on parents who are praying every day for their kids to come to the Lord and are trying every chance they get to speak to them about Christ and spiritual things, and yet their kids are still not walking with the Lord. I don't pretend to know how hard that is. But I do believe there comes a point in time where you are not as responsible as you once were. The Bible's full of godly parents and ungodly children. It's also full of ungodly parents and children who grew up to be godly. So there comes a point in time where every single one of us, we, we get to an age where we have to make our faith our own, and we are responsible for whether or not we walk with the Lord. And so because of that, I don't believe a man who has adult children who are not walking with the Lord would be disqualified from this. Now, that's not the only qualification. Like we said, there's lots of others, so you have to take this as a whole. And finally, I'm going to actually skip over verses 7 and 8 because, like I said, those, I think, fall under the category of godly character. But let's go to verse 9. Look at verse 9 one more time with me. To be an elder, it says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. In 1 Timothy 3, it simply says he must be able to teach. Able to teach God's word. Interestingly enough, this is the only skill required for a man to be considered as an elder. The only skill required, all other qualifications are character-based. This is the only skill required. He must be able to teach God's word. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, this does not necessarily mean that a man has to be able to preach or even stand in front of a big class and teach a bunch of people. But he does have to be able to communicate God's truth effectively to someone else. Whether it's in a, a counseling session, one-on-one, one-on-two, family session, whatever you might think. A man who is an elder does have to be competent in explaining God's word and explaining the gospel and explaining the Bible to other people. And so what this means is, if a man does not know his Bible well, he should not be an elder. If a man does not know his Bible well, he should not be considered to be an elder. You have to know your Bible to teach and give instruction in sound doctrine. You have to know your Bible to understand and recognize what is false doctrine. It also means if a man does not feel comfortable communicating biblical truth to others, he should not be considered as an elder. And it means if a man does not feel comfortable rebuking someone 
for believing false doctrine, he should not be considered as an elder. He must be able to teach God's Word. Now, some men, some men, and we do not have this in our church, and so I want you to know, you don't have to worry about this here now. Now. We might have to worry about it in the future. We need to make sure the future is led at this church by godly men. But some men in churches are given the role of an elder because they attend regularly and give regularly. That does not make a man an elder, according to God's word. Some men are given the role because they have a mind for business. They're really good at getting things done. That does not make a man an elder, according to God's word. And some men are given the title of elder because they do a lot of work on the church building. And that does not make a man an elder according to God's word. None of those do. In fact, the only skill required is that he must be able to teach God's word truthfully, clearly, and faithfully. Now, before we end our discussion on the qualifications of elders, I must give you two that are included in the 1 Timothy 3 list, not included here. Because I don't want to leave this topic without including as much as we can to get a full picture of who should be an elder. So just very briefly, two qualifications from 1 Timothy 3. Number one, he must desire the task. A man must desire to be an elder, to be an elder, to be considered for an elder. And so it's no commendation to a church if a church is constantly badgering this one guy who has, it seems, all it takes to be an elder, but we're constantly asking him year after year, hey, why don't you do it? Why don't you do it? Why don't you do it? And eventually, after three or four years, they wear him down, right? That, that's no con- commendation as a church. You don't want that man being an elder, even if he's qualified in the other ways. Why? Because he doesn't desire it. Scripture tells us elders must serve and shepherd from their hearts. From their hearts. Think of all the dissension it would cause for a man to be sitting in the authoritative office of elder, but he's not doing the work because he doesn't want to. It wasn't in his heart. He just agreed because the congregation wore him down, right? And he's got to desire the task. And then finally, the only other one, he must not be a recent convert, Paul says to Timothy. He must not be a recent convert. Why? Well, Paul says because he might become conceited, puffed up with pride, and fall into the snares of the devil. See, pride is an especially dangerous sin for those of us who are young and for those who are new converts to Christ who are given authority and influence too soon, right? Pride is an especially dangerous thing there. Satan would love nothing more than for a prideful man to be an elder with the authority and the power that that comes with. And so why is all of this so important? Why is all of this so important that we talk about the qualifications of elders? Why would we spend a week on this? Not just because we came to it in Titus, but why is it there? Why did Paul think it's important? Well, once you make a man an elder, once you make a man an elder, unless he commits a sin that is obviously disqualifying, it's very hard for churches to ever ask a man to step down. It's very hard for churches to ever ask a man to step down because you don't want to offend him or his family. You don't want to create a split in the church. But that means if you appointed a man to be an elder who should not have been an elder, then you have someone spiritually leading your congregation who should not be leading them. Now, that is not what's going on in our church here. You need to be thankful for the eight men who are elders here 
We do not have that issue, but there are churches that do have that issue, and they can't do anything about it because you don't want to offend someone or their family or create a split in the church. But that's a huge problem because now you've got an unbiblical, an unbiblical elder, a man who is not biblically qualified, sitting in that role, causing all kinds of issues. If Satan can cause problems with a church's leadership, he can cripple that church's good works and their witness. If he can cause problems with their leadership, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so we must make sure when we appoint men to be elders that they meet God's requirements. If any of you men are sitting in here today thinking, perhaps God might have me do that in the future, you need to ask yourself, do I meet these requirements? Am I working toward meeting these requirements? But we also all need to ask ourselves, when it comes time to put another man forward to be an elder in this church, whenever that may be, it is absolutely crucial that we only nominate men who are biblically qualified in these ways. Otherwise, we could be really shooting ourselves in the foot as a church. It's important that we make sure they meet God's requirements. But we also need to make sure that we do not prevent men from serving as elders when they actually do meet God's requirements. All right? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your good word to us. God, we humbly submit to your wisdom and your word because we know that you know so much more about what is best for us and for our church than we do. God, we seek, all of us seek to uh, mimic the character qualities that you have given for elders here. I pray that you would give us all a desire for godly character like we have just talked about. But also that you would help guide our church into only ever placing men into that role that should be there, according to your word. God, thank you for our elders right now. I pray that you would bless them and honor them and give them wisdom and strength. I pray that you would give them unity. I pray that you would protect them from Satan and help us to support them as a church. God, thank you for this church. God, we seek to build our church on your Son, Jesus. This is the body of Christ. And He is our head. And it's in His name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.